Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. We have an extra special episode for you today. For starters, we're doing our much-requested Second Opinion show. This is where each of us give our thoughts on a game covered earlier by a different contributor. Let me tell you, it was difficult to pick from all those great games. Secondarily, this episode is Luke Matthews' first episode. Welcome to the team, Luke. And as always, I'd like to take a moment to mention our wonderful network, Inside Voices. With such great content as Great Way Games, Board Games in Bed, Ding and Dent, and the board game blog, Cardboard Vault. It's been a great year at Inside Voices and we can't wait for next year. This episode starts with Meeple Lady covering London. Luke lays out his opinions of Azul. I expound upon the deck builder hardback. Sarah goes a Viking in Raiders of the North Sea. And last but certainly not least, Ruel lets us know if Potion Explosion passes his test. Hey, it's Meeple Lady, and today I'll be talking about London, a game previously covered by Lindsay in episode 26. London is a strategic card game from Martin Wallace, and this second edition is published by Osprey Games. I'll be talking just about the second edition in this segment. In London, which plays 2-4 players in about 60-90 to 90 minutes, players take the role of architects rebuilding the city after the Great Fire of 1666 and players build their corner of London in front of them using city cards and borough cards. There's also a development board placed in the center of the table, which will hold discarded cards. This board is scaled according to how many people are playing the game. The artwork in London is lovely and the cardstock is sturdy, and it all fits into a box that folds open like a book, typical of many Osprey games. City cards are shuffled according to an A deck, B deck, and C deck, with the C deck placed at the bottom, B above that, and then the A deck at the very top. Each player starts with 5 pounds, and 6 cards are dealt to each person. The goal of the game is to gain the most prestige points. You do this by managing your cards in your hand, as well as balancing the development of your city, gaining resources from it, and mitigating the poverty that you'll also be getting, which is probably a lot. The takeaway here is that you'll definitely gain poverty, just try to get less poverty than everyone else. I'll explain how brutal poverty scoring is later in the segment. On your turn, you draw a card, either from the draw pile or a card from the development board, and then you must do one of four things. Develop your city, run your city, buy land, or draw three cards. When you develop your city, you can play one or more cards from your hand into the building area face up. When you do this, you must also discard a card from your hand that matches the color of the card you just played. When you build out your display area and play a card, you can place it on top of another card or create a new stack. Some cards also have a cost that you must pay to play it, and if you don't have the money, you can always take a loan, which is a common theme in many Warren Wallace games. In this game, you can take out a loan at any point in the game. To get rid of a £10 loan, you have to pay £15 at the start of your turn. It's pretty expensive to do this, but more often than not, a necessary part of your strategy. You also can pay back as many loans as possible on your last turn, Otherwise, each loan will be a negative 7 points each. If you decide to run your city on your turn, you'll receive the benefits printed on the cards laid out in your display. Some cards require discarding a card to the development board, one that doesn't necessarily match the card in play, or you can discard a popper, which do nothing but take up space in your hand, those pesky poppers. Some cards also force you to flip it over once you've exhausted it. You can decide to activate all of your cards in your building display, or pick and choose which cards you want to activate. Regardless of how many cards you activate, you'll receive one poverty cube for each stack, 
one poverty cube for each 10 pound loan you have, and one cube for each card in your hand. This is where hand management is especially important and how quickly poverty can get out of hand. Sure, your city is six to seven card stacks wide and you'll get a ton of benefits for them, but man, that poverty does escalate quickly and you can never seem to do enough to get rid of those sad black cubes. On your turn, you can also buy land, which is purchasing one of the three borough cards face up near the development board. When you receive a borough card, it immediately replaces any previous borough card you have, and you receive the benefits printed on it, which can usually remove some poverty. This is a one-time bonus, but when you run your city on another turn, the card will indicate what you receive for running your city. Lastly, you can draw exactly three cards. At the end of your turn, if you have more than nine cards, you must discard cards to the development board. You can also use this hand limit to discard popper cards. The game continues until the draw deck is done. Players can control the pacing of the game by not drawing from the draw deck, so the last few rounds of the game can come to a grinding halt when people are trying to squeeze out a few more turns. But the development board helps offset that as when people fill it up with their discards, the bottom row flushes and the top row slides down. This will then give fewer cards for players to pick from, oftentimes forcing them to draw from the draw deck. Some of the cards have a take that effect that targets other players, such as handing out poverty cubes, so some folks might not enjoy that aspect of the game. When the draw deck is done, each other player takes one final turn, then you calculate the final scoring. Take one poverty cube for each card left in your hand, count the prestige points on all of your city cards in your display, pay back your loans, and receive one prestige point for every three pounds you have. And now comes the brutal reality of poverty. All players compare their total poverty cubes. The player with the fewest poverty cubes returns all of them to the supply. Then all other players return the same number of cubes to the supply as well. Those who have cubes left consult the poverty table, and the more poverty cubes you have remaining, the more negative points you'll score. So again, the key is not to be the poorest person in the game. And that's London. This is Meepa Lady for the Five Buy. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meepa Lady, or on my website, boardgamemeepalady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. In Mason's review of Azul in episode 24, he quoted me as saying, Every game is an abstraction. Every theme is pasted on. We like to categorize games in this hobby. It's almost a game in itself but I still believe what I said in that quote, and I find it hard sometimes to delineate the border between Euro and Abstract. Games like Coimbra and Heaven and Ale are just collections of mechanisms with paper-thin, nearly unnecessary themes, so wouldn't that make them abstracts? Or does that make Azul a Euro? Azul's theme is buying tiles and making walls and, and smashing things on the floor? I don't, I don't know. Distinctions are anecdotal, but I don't think anyone would disagree that Azul is a straight-up abstract. The issue isn't whether the categorization is correct, but how it gets perceived. I've seen people who adore Euro games poo-poo anything described as an abstract, even though non-existent theming is the norm in those circles. And fans of thematic games can be even more harsh. I'm here to tell you, do not let anecdotal categorization filter Azul out of your purview. Published in 2017 by Plan B Games, and now by their abstract imprint Next Move Games, and designed by Michael Kiesling, Azul is a tile placement game about... placing tiles. The theme exists solely for graphic design and marketing purposes, and that is okay, because Azul is gorgeous. The art and design are colorful and clear, 
and the tactility and beauty of the hefty resin tiles genuinely adds to the play experience. Illustrator Chris Williams, art director Philippe Garin, and graphic designers Carla Rohn and Marie-Ève Jolie knocked it out of the park here, because the aesthetics could have been GIPF-level boring. Instead, it draws in people who might not have given an abstract like Azul a second look. But as pretty as it is, it's the strategic puzzle that defines it for me. The bird's-eye view of Azul is that players take turns drafting tiles from a set of central display spaces called factories and placing them into one of five pattern lines on their board with ascending capacities, from one at the top to five at the bottom. If you fill a pattern line, a tile from that row will move into a 5x5 grid called the wall for scoring. It seems like a straightforward game, but there are wrinkles. There are always wrinkles. The surface of Azul is just drafting the tiles you need. Each round, one tile from each filled pattern line moves to your wall and the rest are discarded. It behooves you to group tiles on your wall because you score points for each tile in a row or column orthogonally adjacent to the newly placed tile. Beneath that is understanding the capacities of the pattern lines. Do you drop your set of two red tiles into the two-tile row, guaranteeing placement, or drop it into your row of five and hope you can fill that row later in the round? Extra drafted tiles that wouldn't fit in a pattern line score negative points, but sometimes it makes sense to take that hit if it'll get you a great placement. But of course, there are placement restrictions. Rows and columns in your wall may only contain one tile of each color. Once a row in the wall has a tile in it, you can't place that color into your corresponding pattern line anymore. As the game progresses, scoring for placement ramps up, but your options dwindle. When you draft tiles from one of the factories, you take all the tiles of one color, and the rest fall to a central pool. Managing that central pool is two or three layers of depth alone, because at any point, a player can draft from that pool rather than a factory. Your draft might drop critical tiles for an opponent to the center. Even if the move is ideal for you, facilitating a perfect draft for an opponent can be devastating. And since all tiles have to be drafted each round, you're not just watching what you're giving other players, you're trying not to get stuck with a massive block of tiles that you can't place. If you were waiting for me to dissent from Mason's review, I'm sorry to disappoint. This is just one of the best games I have ever played. Some people do think Azul is mean, and yeah, there's a lot of player interaction, but I wouldn't use that descriptor. Passive-aggressively drafting tiles away from an opponent can absolutely affect their strategy, especially if it forces them to draft tiles they can't use. But there's always enough personal benefit that it never feels like a strictly take-that element. These interactions are softened at three to four players because most of the time, drafting for your own benefit outweighs drafting away from an opponent. But be warned that at two players, aggressive interaction is an absolute necessity. Look, solving puzzles is great, but the element of board games that keeps us coming back is interacting with and adjusting to the other players at the table. Azul absolutely nails this interplay and wraps it in a beautiful, tactile, strategic package that, at 30 to 40 minutes a game, never outstays its welcome. In my opinion, Kiesling has designed a masterpiece with Azul, a generational game that will define him as a designer and that I'll be playing for years to come. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games pretty much everywhere, including BGG, Twitter, and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming. Back in 2015, there was a lot of buzz about a new kind of war game called Paperback from Tim Fowers that was a deck builder purportedly like Scrabble, but took some of the word building pressure off. And while I like the concept of Scrabble, the game itself isn't my favorite. But blending it with a deck builder sounded great to me. I mean, ostensibly, I know words. 
Sure, I'm not always great at stringing them together into a sentence, let alone a coherent review, but that should be beside the point for a word game. And yet, it isn't, as my attempts to play paperback fell oh so flat as I failed time and time again to find words in the letters I was given. So when Hardback, the prequel to Paperback, came out earlier this year, I gave it a hard pass. A hard pass. But at SaltCon, my buddy Rob was going to a hardback competition and, well, I tagged along. And I am glad I did. For starters, designer Jeff Beck did a major overhaul on how Paperback worked. No longer was this a word game with some deck building elements. Hardback is a deck builder through and through with a word game theme. I enjoyed my plays of it so much that I ended up buying a copy at SaltCon, and the race was on between Sarah and me to see who would cover it first. In the end, Sarah got more plays in and covered it in episode 30, and the show was better for it, as not only did she do an excellent review, but she also covered Paperback in her first appearance in episode 10, so it made for some nice continuity. Yet, I am pleased to get a second chance to cover it. In Hardback, we are using the cards in our hands to create words for points, but it's much more forgiving of a game, as any card can be wild just by flipping it over. In addition, there are four suits, each with special abilities that fit their theme. Horror cards allow you to get ink or remover. Romance allows you to trash cards and double the value of adjacent cards. Adventure really helps you ramp up your score. And mystery cards let you flip previously flipped and wild cards back over to score them, in addition to allowing you to jail cards from the offer row, which basically means to reserve them. Like a regular deck builder, you want to try and limit yourself to a couple of card types, as having multiple cards from the same theme gives you bigger bonuses. Also, just like regular deck builders, the cards you play are giving you both points and coins to buy new cards, though rarely does a card give you both. One of the cooler innovations from Jeff Beck is the ability to buy ink with that leftover money. If you've played the standard deck builder, you know the drill of trying to buy the most expensive card you can because you want to be efficient with your money you just laid out. While in hardback, you don't waste money. You can buy ink at one coin apiece. You can later trade that ink in at three ink to one coin ratio, or you can spend an ink to blind draw the top card from your deck and play it. The only catch is you now have to use that card in whatever word you make, unless you have some of the super rare whiteout, which lets you discard that card. Still, it can really help balance out uneven turns, letting you transition a turn where you couldn't make much into a bigger turn later. And it is one of my favorite mechanisms in the game. The other, though more rare, are the instant classic cards. These are cards that you may buy from the offer row that are oriented 90 degrees from the rest to show they are special. When played, they go and stay in front of you, and each round you can use that letter again and again to keep getting its bonuses. That is, until someone else uses that letter in their word, at which point it goes into your discard to be drawn up again later. It's a super neat concept. So, okay, enough of the mechanics. How does the game feel? Well, to me it feels much more like a deck builder than a word game, and in my experience it is much more of a game for me. The card themes and combos are very reminiscent of your classic deck builders, where you use all the cards in your hand and then discard that hand to draw up the next one. And that brings me to the downside, which is like all deck builders I've played, there's still the problem where you get a hand that you can't do much with. Now, Harback mitigates this more than most with the instant classic cards and the ink tokens and the wilds, but it's still there. And in some ways it's even worse, because while in most games you can still at least play out all your cards, you may just not get the combos you want, or enough money or points to do with what you want. In hardback, if you can't make a word because you unfortunately drew a handful of consonants or vowels, well, that really stinks. 
You can, of course, flip a couple of cards to make them wild and thereby make a word, but you're really losing a lot to do that. Still, given those limitations, Hardback is the one pure deck builder that I have kept in my collection, and for good reason. Most everyone knows the concept of Scrabble, which is a good enough intro into the gameplay. Jeff has created some really innovative ways to mitigate the luck. It's longer than most deck builders without overstaying its welcome, and it has the same amazing Ryan Goldsberry art that Fowers Games uses. That's not even mentioning the inbox expansions with player powers and a cooperative variant. I'm so glad I gave Hardback a try, and if you like deck builders and have at least a passing interest in word games, I hope you'll at least look further into it as well. At least go back and listen to Sarah's excellent review back in episode 30. If you wish to discuss Hardback further, or anything else really, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Raiders of the North Sea, designed by Shem Phillips and published by Garfield Games, first caught my eye when it was on Kickstarter in early 2015. I loved the art by the Miko and was intrigued by the innovative twist on worker placement, but I decided against backing. A year later, I did back the campaign for Phillips' follow-up game, Explorers of the North Sea. Raiders was available as an add-on, and again, I thought about it. Then in 2017, there was yet another Kickstarter, this time for two expansions to Raiders, and yet again, I thought about it but didn't buy. Clearly, Raiders of the North Sea was on my mind, and I was starting to regret all those missed opportunities. Ruth's review in episode 28 cemented my need to know more, and she kindly agreed to teach me the game. Since Ruth has already done a thorough review of Raiders of the North Sea, I'm not going to explain the game in detail. Instead, check out Ruth's review in episode 28 for more. My concern with Raiders of the North Sea was the level of player interaction. Now to me, multiplayer solitaire is a good thing. I don't mind a little take that, but I really do not enjoy mean games. And I'd seen a couple of early reviews that made Raiders sound pretty mean. But when I actually played it, I found that preconception was totally off base. There are cards with take that abilities, but since all cards have multiple uses, you don't ever have to use them that way. That first game I played with Ruth had a bit of take that, but just a little bit, not enough to make the game feel at all hostile. Since then, I've played Raiders in other groups where the take that abilities just never came up. During the Kickstarter campaigns, I asked around about Raiders to try and find out how mean it was. People told me then that avoiding take that would severely limit your options and make the game feel flat, which is why I didn't get it for so long. But once I played it, that clearly wasn't true. It must be dependent on the group whether you want to play mean or not. Raiders of the North Sea's place one worker, take one worker mechanism gets a lot of attention, and rightly so. It means that another player can't block you entirely from taking an action, but they might mess up the sequence of your turn. This can be frustrating, but the fun, dang you, why did you put a meeple there, now I have to take that action second and I needed to do it first kind of frustration. Not the this sucks, now I can't do anything, thanks a lot kind of frustration. There are enough options on the board and turns move so quickly that even when the turn I'd plan doesn't pan out, there's always something else to do. I think the only time I ever feel stuck is at the very end of the game, when you're looking to get a few more points out of that final turn. If the timing is off, there might be no action available that's worth anything to you. The color of the meeples also adds fun and interesting complications. Because some actions are restricted to gray or white meeples, being the first person to raid a harbor and get a gray meeple means you're the first player who can use those actions. But it's not as big of an advantage as first-time players might assume. It's a bit of an adjustment at first that the meeple you pick up isn't your meeple, it's just the meeple you're holding at the moment. You might be the first to get a gray meeple and use the armory or the longhouse, but as soon as you do that action, you set that gray meeple loose in the game. Anyone else can use it next, probably the player who goes right after you. 
The art by the Miko is as good as I've come to expect from him. Bright, colorful illustrations on the board and cards with interesting character portraits. While Raiders of the North Sea isn't a history game about the Vikings, I love the historical accuracy of including women warriors. Too many games omit female characters because of false assumptions about the past, and it's great that Raiders doesn't make that mistake. My only quibble is that I have both Raiders and Explorers of the North Sea, and much of the character art is the same between the two. I'm sure character art is expensive, but I love the Miko's work and want to see more of it. So I hope any future games or expansions in this series will include new characters. One Raiders add-on I love is the Solo variant, which I bought direct from Garfield Games, but is still for sale from Board Game Bits. The Solo variant is a small deck of cards that controls a phantom player. Each turn, it raids a location if it's able to, collects resources if it isn't, and blocks an action. The Solo variant is puzzly, and it plays quite differently from a game with human opponents. The Solo variant also includes three difficulty levels, which is good because I found it too easy until I went up to the highest difficulty. I've recently ordered the two expansions to Raiders of the North Sea, Hall of Heroes and Fields of Fame. I'm looking forward to the complexity these expansions will add to the solo game and hoping they'll make it more challenging. Raiders of the North Sea is a novel twist on worker placement, quick enough to fit in when you don't have time for a longer game, and a whole lot of fun. And thanks to Ruth for her excellent review that convinced me to give it a try. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not gathering provisions to raid a fortress, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. It's finals time at your local Sorcerer's Academy. Professor Humblescore is watching your every move as you select the ingredients needed to complete your potions and pass your exam. Will you be able to create all of your potions correctly and score enough points to be named Student of the Year? Or will the honor go to one of your fellow witches and wizards? Designed by Stefano Castelli, Andrea Crispi, and Lorenzo Silva, with art by Giulia Gigini, and published by Cool Mini or Not in 2015, Potion Explosion is a set collection game with a bit of Take That mixed into its fun school and sorcery theme. Ruth covered Potion Explosion back in episode 40. After players have their two starting potions on their desk in front of them, you'll take turns grabbing a marble out of the dispenser. Marbles come in four colors. When the remaining marbles collide into each other and they're the same color, you've created an explosion and you'll pull those out. Of course, if the next marbles to collide are also the same color, then another explosion occurs and you'll get those as well. The marbles you collect are the ingredients for the potions you're trying to create. You'll place the marbles on a potions card and you may only complete two potions per turn. Up to three extra marbles go into your reserve pool, the rest go back into the dispenser. When all required marbles have been placed, you've made the potion. Turn over the potion card to unlock a one-time special ability and return the marbles to the dispenser. Points are scored for each potion completed. You're also collecting skill tokens worth 4 points each whenever you complete 3 potions of the same kind, or 5 different types of potions. When a set amount of skill tokens is collected, the game ends. Players count their completed potion points and their skill token points. The most points wins. Once you set up and start playing Potion Explosion, you'll usually have people stopping by to check it out. The game's eye-catching dispenser and colorful components as well as the clickety-clack of those marbles is guaranteed to attract a crowd. My wife and I played the heck out of Potion Explosion when we first got it, and it's been a huge hit with our family and friends. It's the perfect game for family game night. The rules are easy to explain, and most people are familiar with its Candy Crush and Bejeweled-style matching mechanism. What I love about Potion Explosion is the tactical nature of the game. Since the marbles change every turn, you're looking at a new puzzle to solve when you're up, 
But that's not to say you can't plan out your moves ahead of time. You can actually do some planning depending on the potions you choose to make. Knowing the special abilities for them can help you during the game by giving you the marbles you need to finish your potions. You use 6 of the 8 potions each game, so if your group doesn't like Take That, you can choose not to play with the Elixir of Blind Love, which lets you steal ingredients from another player's pool. Personally, I like the potion of Prismatic Joy, which allows you to use ingredients in your own pool as wilds so you can finish off incomplete potions. Pair it with the Sands of Time potion, which allows you to reactivate a potion you've already used and you'll be able to complete potions quickly. You can also ask the professor for help, which means you can pull a marble without triggering an explosion. Then you'll take your actual turn, so hopefully the professor's help will have set you up for a few sweet chain reactions. Of course, asking for help comes with a price. It's your final after all. At the end of the game, each help token is worth minus two points. Potion Explosion combines a familiar matching mechanism, awesome components, and simple rules into a family weight game. It plays well with 2-4 players, and games last anywhere from 30-45 to 45 minutes. I'd highly recommend it for both casual and hobby gamers. For those wondering about the fifth ingredient, Expansion, I don't think it's a must-have expansion unless you've burned out on the base game. I've played the fifth ingredient a few times, and it does a nice job of adding fresh elements to gameplay. White Ghost Marbles are added to the game and can be used as any color to help you complete potions. New potions are included, offering new abilities. New professors are available too to offer new challenges, like a 90 second limit to select a marble, or losing points whenever one of your marbles touches the table. I enjoy Potion Explosion just fine though, and the expansion isn't high on my must-buy list. Your mileage may vary, of course. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L. G-A-V-I-O-L-A. You've been listening to The Five By. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, fivebygames.com. From all of us at The Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.